We've reached that point in our service that we're about to open up the word together. Thanks. <laughs> We've reached that point in our service where we're about to open up the word together. Uh, if you are just joining us, welcome. My name is Tar George. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto Church, and it is my privilege to welcome you. Uh, wherever you are in your journey of faith, uh, we're so glad that you could be here today. Uh, if you are just joining us, however, we are in a study looking at the book of Ephesians. And this is a book that Paul has been writing to tell us about the story of salvation and what God has done in our lives. So if you have your bulletin, you can pull that up and throw it away because the uh, text in there is wrong. <laughs> it actually has the text from last week, and you can tune into our YouTube to listen to that. But uh, this is one of those opportunities where you get to pull out a Bible. You remember what those are? You can pull that out or an app on your phone. And we are going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 together. And here to read for us is Iwin. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Iwan. What convinced you to become a Christian? What would convince you if you are not one currently? It's a question I ask people from time to time, and it's a question that I want you to consider this morning. Every Christian has a story about how they came to faith. For some, it starts early on in life, being raised in a Christian home with parents who taught us the faith. For others, it happened through school. Perhaps we encountered someone who told us about Jesus. We had spiritual questions we wanted answered. Or maybe we were just intrigued by the cute boy or girl on their way to a ministry event. For still others, it happened well into our adult years. Maybe we summoned the courage to step inside a church for the first time. We began to be curious about the Bible. Or maybe we found ourselves seeking for a deeper purpose in our lives. These are just some of the amazing stories that I have the privilege of hearing as I meet with each of you. Some of them are extraordinary and unconventional, and some of them are quite simple and touching. But almost everyone, it seems, can point to a time when they weren't following Jesus, and they were alienated from the life that he has to offer. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey this morning, Paul tells us that there's something special something similar that has happened or has yet to happen in the heart of every believer. Although the stories of how we came to faith are quite different, Paul here invites us to reflect on the common story that every Christian shares. It is a two-part story, and it is quite simple. It's this, that we were dead to God, 
but God made us alive to him. We were dead to God, but God made us alive to him. Those are our two points, and we'll look at those from the text. Look at we were dead to God. Now, the context of this passage, I think, is important. You know, we don't exactly know why Paul is writing these things, uh, but he gives us a clue here in the text about his objective near the very end. Look with me at the text. In verse 5, he says, um, he gives us something of a thesis statement. He concludes with these words, by grace you have been saved. He's reiterating something familiar, but at the same time extremely important about the gospel. He's reminding them of how it is that they came to be saved. Why? Well, scholars think that it's probably been eight years or so since Paul first met the Ephesians and told them the gospel. You can read about that actually in Acts 19. And over a period of time while they've been practicing the faith, Paul seems concerned that they may have forgotten what is most essential to that faith. Because truth be told, we all tend to forget over time, don't we? I think for many of us, when we first came to Christ, the gospel was the most amazing news we could ever have imagined. We learned that we had been forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and adopted into His family. We realized that God's Spirit had come to live inside of us and help us to obey God and live with real power over our sin and in the world. We were learning, growing, and soaking in the Word and being meaningfully impacted by the gospel constantly. But then something changed. The gospel we once so treasured started to become something we heard all too often and began to take for granted. The message of salvation by grace started to feel dull, tired, and a little too basic. And now every time we sit in church, we're just waiting to hear something completely new and different. Because if we're honest, the good news of Jesus now sounds a lot like old news. Am I right? If you can relate to that this morning, I think you are in familiar company with these Ephesians. I think God wants to change our perspective this morning. I think that's why Paul wrote this passage. Look with me at our text. Paul opens the chapter in verse 1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, talk about strong words. Paul takes them back to the very beginning of their faith journey. He reminds the Ephesians of how futile and hopeless life was before they were saved by Christ. He says that they were dead. Well, what does he mean? Well, he's not talking about death in a physical sense, you understand, but rather in a spiritual sense. He's talking about the spiritual consequences of human sin. You can see that in verse 1. He's explaining that sin makes us dead to God. It has the power to make us blind to His presence. It makes us deaf to His voice, and it renders us completely immobile, unable to do anything good that God desires, or to move towards Him in the life that He has to offer. It would almost be like trying to talk or reason with a corpse. It has no life. It has no life and no ability to move or respond to God. Can you picture that? Can you picture that? Paul says, that's what you were without God. 
Do you remember? You were dead and you had no spiritual life without Christ. You didn't follow God and His ways because you were wholly committed to following something else. Paul says it was sin. Verse 1. And in the following verses, he identifies three chief agents through which sin exercised control and influence over our lives. He names them actually in verses 2 to 3. They are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Firstly, he writes, you followed the course of this world, that is the culture's behaviors, opinions, and values. You let these and not God dictate how you ought to think and act in the world. I mean, you listen to whatever is trendy current and acceptable at the time with no regard for God's ways or His Word. And this is what led you to sin. Secondly, you follow the prince of the power of the air, that is, Satan. In some mysterious way, Paul claims that all of us, all of us at one point listened to and obeyed the voice of the devil and not that of God. We might find that hard to believe as modern-day readers. But Paul doesn't shy away from it one bit. He has a strong, strong conviction that there are personal forces of evil around us, and they are opposed to God and everything good that He desires. In fact, so close was our allegiance to Satan, Paul says, that his spirit had this compelling influence over us. Just as Satan is an enemy of God, he made us enemies with God. He too led us to sin. And third and finally, Paul says, you lived in the passions of your flesh. That is, you did whatever you thought was right and good in your own eyes with no regard for God or anybody else. You let yourself be seduced by greed, lust, pride, anger, envy. You name it. Paul says in verse 3 that you carried out the desires of your body and mind. That is, you gave yourself over to every pleasure and every desire that was within your grasp with no concern for right or wrong. You did that. We did that. You only have to skim the news to realize that the world is still like that. This affects everyone. I mean, lest we come away from this text believing that we're just passive victims of external influence, Paul is very clear that you and I willingly did these things. Barring all external influences, we ourselves were deeply drawn to sin. We had no godly restraint. He reminds us in verse 1 that all of us, all of us once walked in these ways. Do you see what he's saying here? Paul is reiterating that a combination of all of these influences is what ultimately drew us to sin. These are what you and I once followed. These are what many of us still follow. And by the way, these are also what put us to death. They made us enemies with God. And it's here that Paul begins to paint a picture of what life really looks like apart from God. He orients his reader to see that there is a spiritual war that is currently taking place between two opposing powers. On the one side, there is the God of the Bible, the Christian deity. And on the other side, Paul says, is everything opposed to the knowledge of this God. It is the world, the devil, and the flesh. You see, underneath the surface of what you and I can see, hear, and touch 
is an invisible spiritual conflict that Paul says is raging all around us, all around us. It doesn't receive media attention like Ukraine, Sudan, or Palestine, but it is a war with much higher stakes. It is a war being fought not for land, oil, or power, but for the souls of every person who has ever lived. And like it or not, Paul says that there's no neutral ground in this conflict. You and I are not just spectators in this war. We are an embattled people who have at one point or another, knowingly or unknowingly, allied ourselves with the opposition. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that because sin and its agents are by nature in opposition to God, following them cannot possibly lead you to the eternal life that he has to offer. They can only lead you astray. They can only bring you death. The world will simply not point you to Christ. And you don't have to be a Christian to see that. The wisdom of the world, all its behaviors, values, and opinions do not and cannot lead a person to see their true need for God. Why? It's because they proceed from a mind that is ultimately dead to God and radically opposed to Him. And because we are so dead to God and enslaved to our sin, the Bible says that we tend to do one of three things. We either deny the knowledge of God and His very existence altogether, or we willfully reject this God and choose to go our own way, or we pledge ourselves to other gods of our own making, idols that would permit us to live and behave in all the ways that we most desire and crave. You see that in our text. Paul is saying, that's what you did. That's what you were like by nature. You ran from God once and you wanted nothing to do with Him. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Paul is saying that human beings left to themselves have a natural disposition to reject God. We can do nothing but resist Him. We will fight Him tooth and nail. And here's why. Because at the heart of things, Paul says that the unconverted person has a mind that is held captive by a spiritual enemy. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Verse 2, he is Satan. And Satan's purpose, men and women, is to suppress the truth of God in people's hearts. Paul even goes so far to write in 2 Corinthians that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. His purpose is to keep people trapped in unbelief and enmity with God because he himself is an enemy of God. It's true, I think, that you don't have to look too far in our city to see that people's worldviews are generally at odds with the gospel. Most people in Toronto regard Christianity as being too exclusive or too intolerant, regressive, unsophisticated, erroneous, or just plain imaginary. And listen, it's the same all over the globe. Anywhere where there's secular or religious opposition to the gospel, Satan has done his work. Paul says that he has trapped people in a kind of disobedience that will ultimately lead to wrath and death. Verse 3. That's where you and I were headed eternally. Do you get the picture? 
Paul is not mincing words here. Sin reigned supreme. You were a slave to its power. You took your cues from the world, the devil, and the flesh. You had no life in you. If you are here and you are a Christian, I think Paul would ask you to consider the sheer enormity of what it is that you have been saved from. You and I don't do that very often, do we? Because if you really understood how heinous and terrible the power of sin was, I don't think you would find the message of grace to be quite so passé. Paul wants you to know and understand how hopeless, fruitless, and destitute your life was before God. You were dead. You were dead. If you were here and exploring the Christian faith, I think Paul would ask you to really grapple, grapple with this concept of sin in your life and in the world. It's true, I think, that we all seem to sense at some level that the world and our lives are not as they should be. There's massive inequality, injustice, corruption, and death. And yet the sad irony of our situation is what Paul presents here. It is that we are hell-bent on seeking life anywhere and everywhere except where God has promised. And that's why we need God to do something to change us. We needed Him to make us alive. And this is Paul's second point. Because in the remaining sections of our passage, Paul turns his attention now to God. I mean, it's worth noting that our entire first section, this whole first section has been all about you and me and our sin and our death. God isn't even mentioned at first. And I think that's intentional. This story has two parts, and Paul wants you to see the significance of each. Look with me at verse verse 4. Paul begins this section with two words, but God. These might just be the two most important words in the entire New Testament. But God. Paul wants you to know that despite all our sin and its consequences, despite all our rebellion and rejection, God made a decision to act for our good. He writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Remember, you and I were dead in our sins. What does Paul claim brought us to life? It was God. It was God. Now, that might sound simplistic to you, but stay with me and I'll show you why this matters. Look with me at verse 5. Paul references the resurrection of Christ. He assumes that you've heard the gospel, namely that Jesus lived among us, that He died upon the cross, and that He was raised to life again on the third day. And so he reminds them, God made us alive together with Christ. He's saying that in the same way that Christ was made alive, so also we were made alive together with Him. Meaning to say that what has changed us from being dead in our sin to now being alive to God is the very same thing that brought Jesus back from the dead. Do you follow me? So, how was Christ raised? 
Well, I think Paul assumes that you have this knowledge also. He writes elsewhere in Romans 8 that it was by the Holy Spirit. He says in Romans 8:11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The spirit gives life. Here's why this, that's important. Paul has spent nearly the whole previous chapter talking to the Ephesians about the work of the Holy Spirit. You may remember back in Ephesians 1 where Paul claims that it is the Spirit who enables us to hear the gospel, receive it, and believe. And it's that same Spirit now who brought you to life also. I asked you earlier, what convinced you to become a Christian? What would convince you if you are not one currently? Paul's answer, nothing but God. Nothing but God. There is no person or program or message that you could hear that would convince you to become a Christian apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that good teaching, reading, and study is meaningless. Not at all. God chooses to use these things to draw us to Himself. However, however, Paul is saying that what ultimately converts a person to Christ is none other than God himself. Verse 4, it can be no other way. Why? It's because each of us was spiritually dead. I don't think I need to remind you that dead people don't just will themselves back to life. We cannot change ourselves or free ourselves from sin and its effects. We can't respond to God, even by faith, unless He first changes our condition. Let me illustrate this for you by way of example. Author Brian Chappell has this thoughtful and yet cheeky illustration about what Paul is getting at here. He says, imagine being present at the time that Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus. None of us would have approached the one who was dead and said, Lazarus, you need to get up because Jesus is here to help you. Lazarus, come on now. He really is a wonderful Savior. All you need to do is reach out to Him and He will save you. If you will but take the first step, then He will do the rest. Do you see what he's saying? Chapel concludes, we would not have said any of those things because we knew that Lazarus was dead. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he responded. Do we say then that this was because of any initiative or effort on the part of Lazarus? No, no, not at all. Lazarus responded, but it was because Jesus gave him ears to hear, strength to move, breath to live, and the will to obey. Lazarus responded, but Jesus was responsible for his new life because Lazarus was dead. Do you understand what he's saying here? Unless God regenerated you and brought you to life, you would remain spiritually dead, which means this, that you and I could never have made a decision to follow Christ by ourselves. We couldn't. We just can't. If the gospel was merely the good news that Jesus died for your sins, I have to tell you, no one would be saved. No one. 
That's good news, certainly, but it's not good enough. Because no matter how well-intentioned the offer of salvation was, we still wouldn't believe it. In and of ourselves, we wouldn't receive this news or accept it because we are so very dead to God and the life that He offers. We needed God to first make us alive. I would imagine that some of you here have some difficulty with this teaching. You're wondering, doesn't this affect my free will? What about my free will? If God chooses whom He makes alive, does that mean that I have no real choice? No. No, not at all. People always have the freedom to choose God or reject Him. This is fundamental to the gospel. By freedom, however, we mean that we have choice in whatever we desire without any force or coercion. However, having the freedom to choose is not the same as having the ability to choose. People have the freedom to choose God always, but sin so corrupts our lives that we have only the ability to reject God. This is precisely what Paul has been saying throughout this passage. We are so enslaved to sin that our desires always run contrary to God. Left to ourselves, we would not choose God, even though we are completely free to do so. This is why we need God's help. You see, the Spirit regenerates us and makes us alive such that for the first time, we have both the freedom and the ability to choose. The ability to choose. The believer now has these new desires and a new power from God to respond. He is no longer enslaved to sin and under its dominion. He's not altogether free from sin, you understand. It will continue to wage war against him, but he has an ability that he did not have previously. He is not forced in any way to receive the gospel, for that would be contrary to free will. But, but he is finally able to make the correct choice because he now has the ability to choose rightly. Do you follow me? I think that's why Paul concludes in verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. He adds later, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet, and yet, this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, nothing you've done. We are saved by grace through faith, certainly, Paul tells us that, but we needed to first be regenerated so that we could respond by faith. I mean, just, just look at this passage. Paul says, you followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You followed the passions of your flesh. The odds were stacked against you, and you were dead. What makes you think that you suddenly willed yourself to turn around and follow Jesus instead? Listen, it's so important that you see this, because it radically changes the way we understand God's grace. Grace implies not simply that an offer of salvation was extended. That kind of offer helps no one. Rather... Grace implies that an offer of salvation was extended and you were actually enabled to receive it because you couldn't do that on your own. That's grace. That's grace. 
You are a Christian because you are not a Christian. Excuse me. You are not a Christian because you made the right decision. You are a Christian because God made you alive. You weren't just spiritually sick and in need of a little help, my friend. You were spiritually dead in need of resurrection. Unless God regenerated you, we would have no hope. Grace Toronto, do you realize how dead you were in your sins? Paul says in verse 4 that if not for the rich mercy of God, if not for the rich mercy of God and the great love with which He loved us, you wouldn't be here right now. I mean, just, just stop for a moment and think about your life and your faith journey. Think about all the ways that God had to personally intervene to save you from your sin. Think about the people He sent into your life to tell you the good news. Think about the individuals Mentors, parents, friends, many who had to be praying for you and walking with you so that you would come to believe. Think about the sequence of events in your life that God had so carefully orchestrated so that you would see your need for Him. And look, it doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. If you came to church this morning, you may already have noticed some of the same contours of God's invisible work in your life. Think about the God who brought you here this morning. Christian, let me ask you this. As you survey your story of faith, what level of gratitude do you currently have towards this God? What level of gratitude? Is it different from when you first believed? Why is that? Why is that? What has made your love for the gospel grow dull over time? You see, I think that's why Paul wrote this passage. He writes, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's pointing them and us back to that old familiar gospel. He's reminding these believers, these quote-unquote mature believers, again of the Christ who saved them. Why? Because we regularly forget, neglect, or take for granted the simple gospel, which is entirely insane, mind you, because it is what we most need to be alive. Jesus himself says in John 17 that this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they, that is people, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Men and women, knowing Christ and being alive in him is a matter of life and death. And if you have been so fortunate as to experience that life, you'd be foolish to treat it with contempt. Listen, Paul has written a total of 23 verses in chapter 1, right before our passage. You can count them. Do you know how many times he has either explicitly or implicitly made a reference to Christ? 21 times. 21 times. The man just can't stop talking about Jesus. It's just overflowing out of him. 
He is not bored by what he knows and hears. The gospel is life to him. So is it life to us? Is it life to you? Men and women, no matter how mature you may think you are in the faith, no matter how knowledgeable you are about the Bible, you must never, ever outgrow the truth of the gospel. One of the things we must not do is read passages like these and write them off as being only for the new believer. This text is written for all of us, skeptics and new believers, but especially, especially for those of us who have been in the faith for some time. There is a danger that whenever the cross of Christ is preached, that the Christian believes he no longer needs to hear of it. Paul is concerned that in your striving to become quote-unquote mature in the faith, that you will inadvertently overlook what is most beautiful and powerful about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he is writing. Listen, the Bible says that you and I were at enmity with God, and we were dead in our sins. And the only way that you could be made alive is ironically, ironically, if God's Son, the perfect sinless one, went to die on our behalf. Paul, writing earlier in chapter 1, says this, that in Him, that is Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's talking about the punishment that we deserve for our sins that was paid for with the blood of Christ. He did that for you. He did that for Paul, and he did that for me. I don't think you understand how outrageous it is that when you were walking in the ways of the world, the devil in the flesh, Christ went walking to the cross. He did that for you. He put to death sin and all its agents so that you and I might walk free. And then he rose from the dead. Then he rose from the dead so that you and I would be alive eternally with him. Do you understand? You were an enemy of God, and Christ made you a friend. You were a son of disobedience, and Christ paid for you with his obedience. You were a child of wrath, and Christ made you a child of God. This is the two-part story that Paul calls us to reflect on and learn to love and never forget. Some implications. If you were here and you were not yet a believer, I am hoping that you are beginning to see even a glimpse of your need for Christ. I would ask you to think seriously about this two-part story that Paul has presented this morning, that you would come to see your spiritual condition as being dead to God, and that you would come to Him for the life that He has to offer. If God has been impressing Himself upon you, respond to Him. Come talk with us after the service, or talk with somebody in the pew. We'd be happy to chat some more. For the Christian here, I think Paul would ask you to do two things from this passage. First, be diligent in these matters. And second, be alive in these matters. First, be diligent. I think Paul would want you to really understand, like really understand the story of your life. Take some time today and this week to just sit and consider the simple gospel 
Learn to love it. Commit to studying it and develop a habit of preaching it to yourself continuously so you never grow tired of it. And second, be alive. Be alive. Paul has identified three things that God has rescued us from, namely the world, the devil, and the flesh. These things no longer have dominion over us, but they do still have power. You were once allied with them against God, but Paul says you are now allied with God in a fight against sin. So you fight the good fight. You fight the good fight. Resist sin and don't let it have foothold in your life. Be conscious of some of these influences, whether they be the values of the culture, temptations of the devil, or even the sinful passions of your flesh. Be fully alive as God has made you alive. May the Spirit give you strength to live and walk in the grace that you have received. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this two-part story. We thank you that when we were dead in our sins, you came and you made us alive together with Christ. We thank you for your regenerative work in our lives. We pray that this would make us diligent and that it would make us alive in every sense of the word, that we would seek to more and more love you and serve you and obey you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have a moment now for a question or two. Um, we can interact with that. Sure, Tariq. One question that we received is, uh, can you please elaborate on the differences between the freedom to choose versus the ability to choose? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you might need to think about that a little bit more because it's fairly wordy and involved, but essentially when you when you talk about free will, your idea of freedom is that you have the ability to choose, that, that you could choose without any force or coercion. So you are free. There, there's nothing that's compelling you to choose God. Uh, there, there's nothing that, that, that God is not making you become a Christian. Um, but rather, uh, in what Paul is saying here, you have been regenerated. You've been given new life. You didn't have that ability before. Before, you might have had the freedom to choose between God and between sin but you had no ability to choose God because you were so dead in your sin. Even though God, uh, even, though if, even if you heard the gospel and you, and you knew something about, uh, you heard something about Jesus, you could not respond to that uh, because God didn't actually, hadn't actually made you alive. So that's, that's the difference between having the ability and have, having the freedom. Uh, that has to do with the, with, with the question about free will. Yeah. Okay. Maybe just one more. Yeah. Is the part where it says being made alive together with Christ, uh, something that gives everyone, including non-believers, the ability to choose Jesus. Sorry, could you say that again? Sure. Is the, the part where it says being made alive together with Christ, something that gives everyone, including non-believers, the ability to choose Jesus? I think you may have touched upon that, but, but um, elaborate. Well, I think we need to read 
Paul's message in context of his whole letter. I mean, he's been talking about, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, he's been talking about election and predestination and regeneration and inheritance and all these other things. Uh, it would seem, even in the passage that we're looking at, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, uh, Paul, uh, Paul alludes that uh, we were once walking in these ways, you were wa- once walking in these ways, uh, but there are people still walking in these ways. And so this, this work of regeneration, it seems, it doesn't happen for all people. Uh, that's not for our concern to know. Uh, God, that, that's in God's will, and uh, that's something that we must mysteriously hold tension with and, uh, and wrestle with. Uh, but, but even still, I think, I think this passage calls us to be diligent in praying for people who don't know Jesus. I think it calls us to be diligent in, in telling people about Jesus. We don't know uh, whom God will regenerate, but we can be assured that, uh, that He will bring to faith the people uh, for whom He chooses. Hope that's helpful. We can wrestle a little bit more with that afterwards if you like. But right now we're going to go to our our song of assurance, and uh, the worship band is going to be leading us. <laughs> 